Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast. Tim E, the worst footballer I've ever seen. I'm coming back to England, man. And I'm keeping my titles. I just remember the atmosphere was incredible. I think that was one of the games that I couldn't wait to get out of. That that was a really important moment in winning the bid as well. Yeah, it just puts you on the spot. Like you just kind of done there with me. <laughs> At least you joined in. Hello and welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast, the only podcast in the UK which is hosted by autistic students who interview some of the biggest names in sport. This podcast has been set up by Technowood School and our aim is to teach our students new skills through podcasting. Each week, we chat to famous sportsmen and women from around the world. We delve deep into their sporting careers, their highs and lows, and what makes them one of the best athletes in their sport. All of our students' hard work and dedication has paid off, as we have recently won a Global Sports Podcast Award for the Best Equality in Social Sports Podcast. That's enough from me. I'm going to hand you over to the stars of the show, which are our students who host the podcast, and I will let them introduce today's guest. Thank you. Technowood School is a school for autistic children and young adults and we set this podcast up to provide our pupils with a fantastic opportunity to develop uh, a range of skills whilst interviewing top sportsmen and women from a variety of different sports. Joining us today on the TWS Sports Podcast is a professional footballer and manager. He played for Everton and Preston as well as other clubs, and he has also managed teams such as Wolves and Cardiff City. Welcome to the podcast, Dave Jones. Hey guys, thank you for inviting me. Looking forward to today. Um, We like to start our podcasts with some random questions before we start talking about your career. Are you ready? Okay, yes, by the way. Who is the most famous person in your phone book? Most famous person? Oh, wow. Um, I have lots of people in my phone book. I have um, local lady uh, to Wolverhampton, Beverly Knight, who I'm good friends with as a singer. I have people like Sir Alex and Arsene Wenger. Um, so it's not a bad telephone book to get hold of, really, but uh, too many to mention because whoever I mention and I miss somebody out, they'll always phone me up then and say, 
why wasn't I included in one of the most famous people in your book? So, um, no, they're all famous to me. I'd have to say my wife would be the most famous one in my book at the moment, otherwise she'll shout at me if I don't <laughs> the list. If you could trade laws with anyone for a day, who would it be and why? If I could trade my life for one day, I, I w- always would have loved to have been uh, a motor racer driver, Formula One. Nice. Um, it's the only, probably the only thing that I would have changed in my career as a footballer. If somebody told me I could have been a Formula One driver, uh, I think I would have gone down that road instead. If you could go back to one year in your life, what will it be and why? One year? Only one year? (laughs) It's been a tough... I don't really know. I I, I tend to... um, I had an old saying. I wrote a book once and somebody quoted something to me and I've never forgotten it really, which I basically said that um, I've seen yesterday, I'm enjoying today and I look forward to tomorrow. So that's always stuck with me really. So um, that'll be a difficult one for me because there's many things I'd like to change, but I can't. And I think I'm always looking forward rather than, than backwards really. That's very motivational. Um, thank you for answering those questions let's chat about your career okay we want to take you back to the beginning and talk about your childhood what are your memories of growing up and did you always want to be a footballer yes I always wanted to be a footballer actually started my younger career like most young players we you start off playing school football and then I joined a, a local club in Liverpool and I played for them. And then I got scouted by Liverpool. So I actually started my career at Liverpool as a very young player. And then I got picked up by an Everton scout. And being an Evertonian and having blue blood that runs through my veins, uh, the choice between Liverpool and Everton was always going to be an easy one for me. So I chose Everton. So probably from the age of 15, I uh, I went to Everton. And then, um, of course, I went through the normal roles of junior football at the club. And then I signed professional contract at 17. So I was quite lucky to sign so early, really. Uh, you started your career at Everton. What are your memories of your time at Everton? Well, like like mo- like most youngsters when they start a football club in a football club, um, probably they they molded me. They molded my life, gave me my principles along with my parents. So Everton at the time, and when I was was there, um, but one of the clubs that uh, you know that were always at the top, different now, but they always used to be at the top, challenging for all the trophies. So. Being brought up as a youngster at a club that you support, for me, was there's nothing better. And even now, when you see young players come through that are locals, it's a, it's a great feeling. And 
one minute you're standing on the stands shouting your heroes and the next thing you're playing with them. So they're my memories of um, going from being a supporter to actually playing with people that I'd been chanting for a few years earlier. And, of course, the, the memories of making your first time debut, uh, playing in the cup final, um, and, and just basically as a youngster living living a life that, you know, you could only, or I, I was only dreaming about a few years earlier. You retired for playing in 1984 after playing for Preston. What did you do for 11 years before you became a manager with Stockport? Well, I didn't really, I retired from uh, full-time professional football due to a knee injury. But then a friend of mine was manager of Southport Football Club. And he asked me, would I go along and play for them? Which was fine. I wasn't having to train every day uh, and doing damage to my knee that way. So um, I went into non-league, semi-professional football and I played for the likes of um, Southport, Mosley and Morecambe. And in that time, I got the the liking for becoming a coach. So I wasn't only just playing, I was also coaching. And luckily, quite successfully as well at that level, which I really enjoyed. Um, and then I got my opportunity to go back into full-time football at at Stockport as a uh, youth coach and assistant manager. So that period of 10 years, I was either playing non-league or I was learning my trade as, a, as an assistant under a manager called Danny Bogara, who was quite famous, a Uruguayan. Um, had some funny sayings in his time, but um, he educated me at Stockport. Uh, I was under his rule for about five or six years before I actually came manager of Stockport. We've come to a new segment of the podcast and we've got a new game to play. This game is called Guess the Photo. In front of our students here, we've got a photo of a very iconic sporting moment and they're going to try their best to explain what they see in the photo and give you clues to try and guess the photo. And then at the end of the episode, we will reveal the answer. So I'm going to hand over to our students now who are going to try their best to explain what they see in the photo. Good luck. So there are 11 players here cheering. They're wearing yellow. And a bit of black. And it looks like they're playing a game that involves a bat. Because I can. there's one. I can see one. Yeah. Um, it's mainly cricket. And um, there's a person crouching down near one of the kind of wickets that you aim for. There's someone off the side wearing green and orange wearing with a helmet and, glo- and gloves. So... Maybe, so he must be the one that has to catch whatever it is. There, There's also a lot of people jumping and um, quite a lot of them are in groups. Yes, they seem to be celebrating. Brilliant. And um, best of luck with that. We'll tell the answer at the end of the episode. Good luck. Do you any want to become a manager and how do you feel about become Stockport manager? Well, once once I'd, I'd got into the coaching, the next stage for you, for you is um, progress-wise is to go and 
and become a manager from a coach. And I got that uh, opportunity at Stockport. They were sort of grooming me to, to take over from the manager. It just came probably 18 months earlier than what they expected because the manager had a problem with the chairman. Chairman sacked him. Um, and then I got the opportunity to take over. So I probably got the manager's job at Stockport County probably 12 to 18 months earlier than what was expected. But alongside me at the time was my assistant, was a guy called John Sainty, who was older than me. And he sort of guided me through the early years as becoming a manager. So if I was going to do something stupid like, you know, kick something in the changing room or throw something at somebody or whatever. He was sort of the common influence. So he taught me an awful lot within the first two years of my management. And um, no, it's that there were good times at Stockport because we were very successful. And of course, that led me on to going into the premiership then. You had a successful time at Stockport winning promotion and reaching the semi-final of the League Cup. What are your memories of that time? Um, memories of that time are the camaraderie that was in the dressing room. The, and, and sometimes as a manager, you go through a period of your career where everything you touch turns to gold. And at Stockport at that time, for two years, everything we did basically turned to gold. I mean, you know, we, we got, as you said, we got promoted, we got to cup finals, we got to semi-finals, uh, and the club became more known around the country and around the world because of the success we were having. Um, but the biggest memory was the camaraderie amongst the, the, the staff and the players. And, and that normally means that when that happens, you you normally tend to have a successful period within your within your time, and and then going to other clubs, that's also what I tried to build, not just build a team up on the field. I also try to build a team off the field, and that gives you that bond that lasts forever. It's like it's like having good mates around you. That that's what that's what it's like, and you can have a go with each other without falling out, and you can say things if you're not happy and people don't fall out with each other. And, and I learned that pretty early as a manager. I had that as a player and that seemed to go into my management, which was, which was helpful, really. Um, after leaving Stockport, you become manager of Southampton. We read that your time at Southampton was quite a difficult time for you. What are your memories of your time there? Well, it wasn't so difficult as for the playing side. It's because the playing side was fine. My, my remit to go into Southampton was basically to dismantle a very old team, which they had, and build a new team. So um, as successful, I mean, the first year I was there, I won manager of the year for the premiership which is no mean feat. So I was quite successful bringing in good players that the club eventually sold for a lot of money. We stayed in the premiership, but unfortunately I had some problems outside of football that I had to deal with. And that took 
really 16 months of my football career away from me. So that was a difficult time, was more outside of football rather than in football. So once I'd got through that, um, hence the reason why I then went on to become the Wolves manager. Um, what type of manager were you? What type of manager? Oh, mm. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I think that's a question you'd have to ask people that uh, have worked with me. I, I know you've had Jay Bothroyd on and people like that, so they'll probably give you uh, a better opinion of what sort of person I was. I would have always liked to have been, or I hope I was, fair. Uh, fair with the players, honest with the players. Uh, that's what I would have liked to have been and I hope I was. So uh, I'd like to say kind and a nice person, but sometimes you have to make decisions that aren't always uh, nice to do. But fair would probably be what I would like to have been and hope I was. I just want to come in. You mentioned we spoke to Jay Boffer and Michael Chopper as well. And I was going to come in because I don't know if the boys will remember, but we asked them, we did speak about that time at Cardiff, and they both said that you were a great man-manager. You were really good with the individual players. You were fantastic with Jay and, and Michael. Um, and they said that one of your best attributes was your, your man-management skills of all the players. And you had some quite big characters at Cardiff, which we'll come on to. But yeah, they said it was your, your man-management that made you a really top manager. Yeah, I, I think... Man, when you become a manager, it's, it's like in all walks of life. It's, it's like, you know, being a teacher or whatever. You have to get to know the individuals and what makes them tick. Because, you know, you as you said, you spoke to Jay and you spoke to Chops and they were two totally different characters. One was crazy. One was more crazy than the other one. So <laughs> you, had, you had to find... What made them tick? What what got the best out of them? Um, and again, I think that was part and parcel of what you take from what happened to you as a player or as a person <clears throat> into your management. So that's kind of them to say that because, as I said, uh, I think that comes under the under the word that I use: being fair, being fair to everybody and getting the best out of him, you had to know them, not just as a group, but individually, because they all brought something different. They all had their own problems and you had to deal with them as well, not just within football, outside of football. And if you don't actually know the individual, then they're the things you can't help them with. So I think that's important to actually get to know them as a, as a person and what makes them tick and what's going to get them to perform week in, week out to the highest um, the highest ability. And so no, that's nice of them. So again, I, I go back, I, I would say, what type was I? I think I was a fair manager who understood. And listen, there'll, there'll be players that say that I didn't and uh, everything else, but they're normally the ones that you haven't picked or you haven't played or something like that. But uh, <laughs> there, I think is... With, Hopefully, sum me up. Yeah, uh, you had some great players at Southampton, such as Matt Letizia, 
Mark Hughes, uh, James Beattie, and more. What was it like working with these players? And do you have any stories um, about any of them? <laughs> yeah, lots of stories about them all. I mean, James Beattie, uh, I brought to the club uh, because we sold uh, Kevin Davis to Blackburn Rovers and James Beattie played with my son at Blackburn. So I knew at 18, 19, he was a really good young player that hadn't really broken into the team at Blackburn. So we got a lot of money for Kevin, plus potentially a very good young player. Um, the Beats was... Well, we, we have what we call low-maintenance and high-maintenance players. Um, someone like Matthew Tissier would be a low-maintenance because you knew Tiz was just going to turn up and perform. If you go back to the likes of Chopra and Jay, Jay were high-maintenance. They were always up to something. They were always going to do something. So um, Southampton... Matthew Tisse was probably one of the most gifted players I've ever come across. But the problem with Tiz was he loved his food. And the biggest problem we always had with Tiz was trying to keep his weight down. <laughs> uh, because he loved McDonald's. <laughs> so when he was with us, we could control what he, what he was eating. But when he was away, no, very difficult. And I had people like Paul Ince uh, to manage and David Hurst down at um, Southampton, you know, Carlton Palmer. They were all high-maintenance players, so you always had to be on your guard with them because they would always try and play tricks on you as well uh, to get out of training, get away from training early. So... Um, I was brought up through uh, at Everton through the hard knock school, as we call it. So I knew all the tricks they were up to because I'd done it myself at Everton. So uh, they never got away with anything. But um, I'm not sure I'd be done for liable if I gave out too many stories, to be honest. But um, <laughs> uh, they were always trying to get one over on the coaches, uh, players. And... That's why he had to know them inside out when they were joking, when they went. But uh, no, Tissier at Southampton was probably one of the most gifted players because players had to, we had to stop in training sometimes and just applaud something that he'd done because uh, he, was, he was a special player. Yeah. And he was a magic player, really. Yeah, because like, um, it was good to hear about that because when um, we, of course, um, Chatted to Leticia on the podcast, so it's a pleasure to get reminded um, of that episode. Well, we actually tried to narrow the shirts, the stripes on the shirt to Southampton to make him look thinner. <laughs> so um, uh, you then joined Wolves in two thousand one. Before we talk about your time at Wolves, I just wanted to ask about the process of becoming a manager at a new team. How does it work? Do you have to apply, send a CV? What is the interview process like? It can come, it can come from all different ways. I mean, when 
once my uh, problems off the field were sorted out, then everybody knew I was back on the market, as they call it, back on the wheel. And um, I had three offers straight away. I had one from Barnsley, one from Norwich, and Wolves came in later. They came in a day later. Uh, I'd been interviewed by Barnsley. I'd been interviewed by Norwich. And then Jez Moxie at Wolves rang me and asked, would I be interested in becoming the Wolves manager and would I go for an interview? So there's all different ways. You either apply for the job or the club approaches you or an agent approaches you. In my case, it was three phone calls from my agent to say that uh, clubs were are interested in speaking to you. And because I, did, I wasn't at a club, uh, it was easy for me then to go in and speak to them. If you're at a club and another one comes in for you, then there is a process where the club has to approach the football club itself to ask for permission to, to be able to speak to you because you're under contract. I wasn't under any, any contract, so I was free to speak to anybody I wanted to, really. And I, I had a couple of jobs, offers from abroad as well. But at that time, I didn't think I had enough experience to go abroad. So hence, that's why I chose Wolves. They, they were, for me, what I thought was the best club to go to rather than the other two. And it was very close because they were all good clubs um, with good chairmans. Um, but I just felt that Wolves was probably the better one for, for what they wanted from the manager. Uh, do you ever got for in the interview at the club and not get the job? Only once. Once I've been for an interview for a job. And um, partly my fault because I didn't really want the job. <laughs> I'd, I'd just been, I'd spent eight years at Cardiff and uh, Bristol City uh, asked for me to go for an interview. Well, I'd only just left Cardiff about two weeks earlier. And after you've done like, you know, eight years at a club and non-stop, day in, day out, I just felt I needed a break, get away with my family, have a holiday. Uh, and they wanted me to start straight away. So um, my agent persuaded me to go to the interview, uh, which I did. Uh, but I can honestly say that I didn't really throw my heart into it because I honestly felt I needed a break away for a couple of months and just recharge my batteries. So um, they gave it to uh, somebody else rather than me, which um, I wasn't really bothered about. But in hindsight, if they would have offered me the job, I probably would have gone in and recharge the battery straight away but I just felt I needed a break away but uh, and that's what I did so partly my fault but that's probably the only one I've gone for really that I never got If you'd got that job Dave it wouldn't have gone down very well with the Cardiff City fans would it? No um, not really <laughs> you know it's <laughs> Swansea or Bristol or Reading was the closest to them but um 
you know, I, as an Evertonian, and and you have to remember this. It's uh, it, it's although I'm a, I'm a supporter, it, it's also my job. So if Liverpool come in tomorrow and ask me to be manager of Liverpool, I would say yes, even though I'm an Evertonian and because because it's my job. So although the fans wouldn't have been happy, you'd be happy because you've got you know you are it is a job and and that's when people ask me do I go and see Wolves play? No. Because when I was at Wolves, it was my job. I, I you know, I don't support Wolves. Um, I worked for Wolves, and that's the big difference of being a manager and being a professional player. Really, um, it, it is a job to us as well. Uh, we're not really supporters, and I think that's hard sometimes for supporters to understand. Here at the Amethyst Academies Trust, we are incredibly ambitious for our schools and our pupils, and we believe that there is no ceiling on what can be achieved by anyone. Working in partnership with Penhall School and Technol Wood School, we are proposing to refurbish the beautiful Penhall Mansion, a grade two star listed building in Wolverhampton, into an exciting and professional specialist vocational college for young people aged 14 to 19 with special educational needs and disabilities. Changing the face of employability for young people with SEND, the college will offer specialist career pathways and in-house vocational learning experiences for students that will be open to the public. Students will be able to develop their skills, knowledge and flourish in confidence across a wide range of audiences. We need to raise £400,000 to refurbish the mansion and provide accessible and stimulated learning and working spaces for students and the community. We are relying on public donations, business relationships and support, no matter how big or small, to make this college a reality for our students. Donate today. Go to www.sedgwick.aatrust.co.uk Sedgwick College. Discover bright futures. The Union got protected with Wolves in your first season. What do you remember about that? But my remit to go into Wolves was to get Wolves promoted within three years. That's what uh, it was. So the first year was really about what I spoke about earlier, was dismantling the team uh, and then building a team. Because when I went to Wolves, there were a lot of players that weren't, um, that were injured. I think there had a lot of injuries. They had players that, they paid a lot of money for that were uh, playing for whatever reason. And also, I just felt some of them weren't up to the standard that was going to be needed. So in my first year, first six months, really, I think I got, I got rid of near on 25, 28 players out of the squad. And then slowly was to build the squad. Um, but unfortunately, <laughs> we had... A really good season. All the players that are brought in, we got close to promotion. Um, and unfortunately, West Brom pipped us, which, you know, the competitiveness between West Brom and Wolves is quite high. So to lose out to West Brom was a killer for them, really. But we knew within the, within the camp, I know the supporters wanted to go up straight away, but it was basically a three-year building job. Although it was disappointing not to go up the first year, um, it was just as nice to go up the second year, really. But the first year was more about building and 
getting a team in place and getting everything ready to have a push for promotion. We were probably a year ahead of where we probably felt we should have been. Um, but, you know, to miss out was also hard to swallow. But we also knew that the following year we had a good chance of getting promoted and, and, and we did. You then got promoted with Wolves the following season in 2003. What was that like for you and how good was it to get promoted to the Premier League? Well, if you're going to get promoted out of the Football League, it's the best way to go up is to go to a playoff final. The atmosphere, the day, the build-up is, um, is great. Don't get me wrong, I would have gone up automatically. I would have been just as happy to go up automatic and not have the stress and the strain of going through playoffs. But it is one of the best. And I've been fortunate to go up a few times within the playoffs. So it is one of the best feelings. The atmosphere that day, my wife always says and my children always say, and walking around Wolverhampton because I still live within you know, within within Shropshire, so I still live within the area. People always come and say that it was the best day of their lives. Even my wife says it's the best day of their life. Um, and it is, it, it's a great way of going up. And I loved, although I don't remember a great deal about it because you're focusing on the team and getting, you know, re- them ready to play. But the atmosphere afterwards and the, and the next week or so afterwards was just pure delight. Getting on the bus, going through Wolverhampton on the bus, meeting all the fans, and just to see so many people, because they've been out for 20-odd years out of the top division, and just to see them get back uh, was a great feeling. So it is the best way of going up, but it's also a very stressful way because it can go either way. So uh, if... If there's a choice between playoffs and automatic promotion, I would take the playoffs if you could guarantee me that I was going to win. If you couldn't guarantee <laughs> it, I'll go automatic. But it, it, it was a fan, an unbelievable weekend, really. It was, And we played on the Monday because it's a bank holiday. So we, we had all the weekend to watch the playoff games, the two previous ones. And the nerves and the tension were building every day but once we got into the stadium all them nerves nerves disappeared and you can see that by the start we had because we were three and a look at half time so so all, all all the nerves disappeared which was great so um how do you find the step up from the championship to the premier league it's a million miles it's a million miles apart um I've always believed that the Premiership is the hardest division to stay in. The Championship is the hardest division to get out of. It is. And and then when you're competing with teams like Manchester City and Liverpool and Manchester United, when you, when you consider, you know, the difference between, say, when I was at Southampton or Wolves in the Premiership, the difference in the quality and the players that they can attract to them clubs is enormous. Uh, so the gap is massive between Premiership and um, Football League clubs. 
mainly because of the money and the players that come in. The Premiership attracts the best players in the world. Um, but it, And it's a great place to play in. The, the, to go and travel around uh, some of the Premiership clubs, it, it's great. I loved every... I've, I've loved all my, all my time in football. Good, bad and indifference. And I've loved, I've loved every minute of it because, as I said earlier, I'm doing something that I enjoy. You know, so it's... Premiership football for me was, was fantastic because there's only 20 of you. There's only 20 managers. So wherever you went in the world, somebody always recognised you or whatever. What was your pre-game preparation like? What did you find yourself doing the hour before the game? I found it the most difficult part because there's nothing you can do because you've done your preparation You've done your team talk probably um, the morning off before the team get to the changing rooms. So that hour before you played was the was the players' time, so they could mentally get prepared, get themselves changed, go through what routines they had. So that hour, that hour and a half before the game, uh, was the most difficult for me because there's not there's nothing really you can do. And then you're going to be talking to people um, when really you want to be sitting in the dressing room and, and being part of it. But um, that hour before the game is when the players are getting prepared. So that, that was the time for me that uh, I found quite difficult because what do you do? You know, you're just standing around or you're sitting around. Uh, people are talking to you, but really you're thinking about what's going to happen, you know, kick off. So I always found the hour before, hour and a half before the game quite difficult because I never really knew what 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 you could do with it at that time because you'd, you'd done all your preparations and you might go around, talk to players and just reiterate what, you know, what they've got to do. But then you do that 15 minutes before you actually go out. So that hour, I always found very difficult, really, what, what, what to do with myself, just mm-hmm. twiddle my thumbs or read the programme or something like that. Just try to get ready for that 10 minutes before they actually go out and what you're going to say then. Uh, Because then you have to rely on your players. So all the work that you've been doing through the week to get to that that game, you're hoping that they've listened to you and they're going to put that into into action. You then left Wolves in 2004. We have chatted about what it is like as a manager to join the club, but can you talk to us about what it is like for a manager to get sacked and how did you find out what that is that what that is that conversation like? Well it's not it's not I knew at Wolves it was coming because I fell out with the owner, Sir Jack Hayward. So sometimes you know, um it wasn't about results or anything like that. It was it was a personal problem, really, I felt with Sir Jack. So, um, no, to lose your job is not nice. It's uh, difficult. Because, um, as I said, you know, it is it is a job. And then all of a sudden, you've got to then find another job. And um, it's okay when you're younger, but when, when you're getting older and older and you start to lose 
then it becomes more difficult. No, um, how did they tell me? I just got called into uh, the chairman's office and between the chairman and the CEO, they just thought a change would be better, so fine. So you, you move on. But I knew it was coming at Wolves, and I knew for probably six weeks before. You got a, you got a feeling, um, and then you have to apply or wait for somebody to come for you again and hope that what you've done previously, somebody else wants. Um, but it's not nice, it's like anything else, you know. Any other... Football is no different to any other walk of life. If you lose your job in any, you know, teacher, if Adam lost his job, you're always down, but you're always hoping then that the next one's going to build you up again and, and you go again. And that's the life that we live in football. We we understand that. It's um, what we call dog-eat-dog. Um, when you lose one, you go after the next one. And you've just got to be strong enough to do that. And don't forget, You've also got 40,000 other managers that know better than you. When you play the game on a Saturday, there's 40,000 people in the stand that can do the job better than you. So um, it's always difficult. You then joined Cardiff City in 2005. How did that come about? I just got a phone call. I I was actually um, at home cutting the grass. And um, I got a phone call off um, the club's uh, CEO, a guy called Peter Ridsdale. And he just asked me, uh, would I um, come for an interview with the chairman, Sam Amman, down in London? So um, the following day, I jumped in the car and I went to London and I spoke to the CEO and the chairman of the football club and they offered me the job there and then, really. So it was a um, big club, big old club um, that wanted to become a fashionable club. So, again, it was, it was a building job for me. And, you know, we built a new stadium, a new training ground. We brought in players that the club had never seen before, you know, Jimmy Hasselbank and Robbie, Robbie Fowler and Trevor Sinclair, all these top quality players, you know, Jay Bothroyd and Chops, Peter Whittingham. We had some unbelievable players that come through in, in the seven, eight years I was there. So it can just be a phone call or you, you apply for something. I didn't apply for it, it just came. I didn't know the manager was, was being released at the time. So once they released the manager, then I spoke to them. I will never speak to a football club that's already got a manager in place. And that happens sometimes in the game. Uh, the chairman will phone a manager and, and ask me, would you come to me when I'm sacking my manager? I would never, ever... I made the point of never speaking to a club that already had a manager in place. They wanted to speak to me, it would be after they released the manager, not why I was in place. I just didn't think it was right. I wouldn't like it done to me, so I certainly wouldn't do it to anybody else. What were your first impressions of Sam Hamam and Peter Risdale? How did they 
how did they manage to sell you their version of Cardiff City? Well, my, my first meeting with Sam and Man, he tried to get me to eat sheep's eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and other things which I, I won't mention, but um Sam and Man was was a big, big character in the football world. A lot of people thought he was crazy. Uh, he probably was, but um, he, he was part of what, what you, you guys won't remember, but the Wimbledon crew, they called them, and they did crazy things, crazy, crazy things. My first day in the job at uh, Cardiff, he got one of the apprentices, Sam Man, to let all my tyres down on my car. So when I drove off, I didn't know all the tyres were flat on my car. Um, as I said, he tried to get me to eat sheep size. Um, he'd walk around the pitch and get the crowd going and jump in the crowd. He, he was crazy, but um, it, he was he was. I've worked for some crazy chairmans, but I have to say they've all been fine. Uh, Peter Ridsdale. Did the fantastic job at Cardiff, considering when I went there, there were 60 million in debt and no money, no players. So it was a complete rebuild, and that's what we did. Um, and within the first two years, it was very difficult because we had no money whatsoever. So no training ground, nothing. It was unbelievable. Um, so when you see the club now and the stadium it's got now, uh, I feel very proud that I was part of of doing something at that club. Really. So you mentioned there, Dave, about Sam Haman. What was his reasoning then for doing these things to you with your tyres and the, the sheep size? Was there a reasoning behind it or was it that just him? Uh, just him, I think. When He was certainly crazier at uh, Wimbledon because they used to start fights and um, break things and everything else I think it was just him. I think he he felt it was part of it. It was like a big act for him. Um, but he he, he was a, a really nice man, but he was a crazy man to work for. Uh, he, he'd ask you to go and sign players that you knew you couldn't sign because we didn't have any money at the club. But he always tried to say, oh, go and phone them up and see whether they'll loan them out or something like that. How much have we got to pay? You know, we've got five pounds to give them a week. Not, you know, they're on fifty thousand pounds. Not gonna happen. So he was he was always uh, he was an enjoy it was an enjoyable time to work for him, but it was also a crazy time. Is there one player that stands out that he asked you to sign that was never gonna happen? Yeah, he, he asked me to sign a player at uh, Fulham who was on sixty thousand pounds a week, and the most we could afford was like £2,000 a week. <laughs> so why is the player going to come to us? And uh, he, he actually sacked me three times within the first month I was at the club. And because I said no to him, he sacked me. And then he, he'd phone you up and say, uh, you'll do me, boss. You'll do me, boss. You, you, you don't agree with me. So it was like a game. So once he sacked me the second time, I knew... He was never really good. He didn't really mean what he said. It's just if you said no or disagreed with him, he'd throw a tantrum, sack you, go away, 
and then think about it and then phone you back up and say, I was only joking, boss, you know, you know me, I'm only kidding. So uh, <laughs> crazy things like that, that would happen. But um, the first 12 months of Cardiff was very difficult because having no money and not knowing whether you're going to play the next game because they hadn't paid, you know, the football league or the, the electricity for the floodlights, it was a very difficult time. Um, but the players that are brought in were, were all ways and strays. You might not understand that way, but the ways and strays where they'd always been... I brought in alcoholics, gamblers, uh, all the players that had been released from clubs that were good players but also had a problem. So again, going back to your early question, was getting inside their heads and finding out what made them tick. And they were great, great players to work with as well because you could see them change and turn their life around as well, um, which was great to see. And they did a great job the first few years at Cardiff because nobody else had given them an opportunity. But they were the only type of players that we could afford. So uh, to see them change their lives around was also a great feeling as well. Cardiff City sold lots of players uh, when you joined. Do you did you realise what a bad situation Cardiff City were in? No, Chairman lied to me. He told me it was a great, and they'd only been promoted the year before. They got promoted the same weekend that I got promoted at Wolves. So they went, they went up through the playoffs as well. They played on the Sunday and we played on the Monday. So um, they, they, they spun me a yarn that the club was in great, great condition. And it's only when I got there that I realised and I found out that there was 60 million in debt and they have to sell all their best players. So when I went in, I had a squad of about 25 players and within two weeks... I think I had seven left because they had to sell everybody else to cover debts and pay off bills and everything else. Um, so it was a challenge. It was a massive challenge for me. But um, I enjoy challenges like that. And the club, the club went from strength to strength. And that's down to it, not just me. That was down to everybody associated with the club at that time. Everybody worked really hard. Um, as you have to do in football to get to where they were. So we wiped off the debt. We built a new stadium. We built a brand new training ground and the club just went from strength to strength. Um, and there were good times, some really good times there as well, with some great players as well. If you knew the truth about Cardiff City from the start, would you have accepted the Cardiff job? No. <laughs> I run a million miles away from it. Um, no, that's not true. I probably would have because I like a challenge. Um, my wife thinks I'm crazy. She thought I was crazy going down there to begin with. So um, I didn't think I knew that, I knew they had problems, but I didn't realise the problems they had um, until I got inside, and then you you see the true picture. I mean, not to have a training ground and everything else, when they told me they did, uh, that was a bit disappointing. 
we, we had just one one pitch across the road from Ninian Park, which uh, all the players had to go on an hour before we were due to train and clean up all the dog mess uh, because people had let the dogs run on it before we could train on it. But you know what it also gave the players? We sold them the dream as well, that if they do well, this is what it can be. And the first game we played in the new stadium, every player took a great pride in that because they were part of that to build that and everything else. So there's also that side of it. But no, I probably wouldn't have run a mile. I probably would have seen it as a, a crazy challenge for me as I've always done in my career, really. I like a challenge. <laughs> With no budget, you managed to bring is some top players such as Chopra, Jay Bothroyd, Jason Coomers, Peter Whittingham, Roger Johnson, uh, Kevin McNaughton and more. How did you manage to do this? Uh, <laughs> Uh, I'm giving all my secrets away now, aren't I? Um, <laughs> it, you had to sell them the dream. You had to sell them what you were trying to achieve and try and get inside that person's head that they could be something, they could be part of something big. And as I said, when, when we moved into the new stadium, that, that was a massive achievement. Uh, the problem we had at Cardiff all the time is we'd always get close to promotion, but because of the finances within the club, we then also had to sell our best players. So we take two steps forward and then we take three back. So it was always difficult for us. But um, when you look at the players that I did bring through and we did bring through from the youth team, it probably was five or six years that was a fantastic time at the club. Uh, you don't actually realise that until you actually leave it. But, um, you know, you know Craig Bellamy, to get Craig Bellamy from Manchester City on loan when he was on ridiculous amounts of money to get him to come to us, um, we had to sell him the dream. And that's, that's what I did. I sold him what the club could be with their help and there's nothing better than it's only a small thing but at the stadium every player that was part of that club um, at that time they have a, a brick with their name on that gets put into the building of the stadium there can't be anything better than that legacy that you were you were part of that it wasn't about money it wasn't about what they could earn or whatever it was just about being part of something that they could build. And that's what we had to sell them. We sell them, sell them the dream of what they could achieve and what they could leave once they, you know, hopefully they achieved it. You mentioned about selling the dream of David. Obviously, the three of you, you, Sam and Peter, are obviously very good at that. You sold the dream. Some people might look at it as lying, possibly. Did you get any players that you, that you signed who you, you told all this to and then they, they arrived and were like, nah, this is not for me or were very upset and angry? No, I, I mean, I never interviewed the, the... I always interviewed the players at a hotel. I never interviewed them at the ground because the ground was shocking. It was falling apart. So 
I would call it more fibbing than lying. It was distorting the truth, <laughs> you, could, you could say. Um, but I, I did everything I told them, I did believe that we could achieve. And I never lied to them about, I would never lie to anybody really about what, if I didn't think it could be done myself. So you, you could say that, but we never looked at it that way. We looked at about some joining joining something that um, to be part be part of would make them feel good as well. So I would say it was telling fibs a little bit rather than lying. You reached the FA Cup final in 2008 against uh, Portsmouth and sadly Cardiff lost 1-0. What are your memories of that game? Our, our actual cup final was the semi-finals. To actually get to the final and be a championship club and play a premiership club was phenomenal. I don't think people gave the players and the coaching staff the credit it really deserved. Um, because, you know, to get to a cup final, and when you look at how many teams start at the start of that competition, you know, you go all the way down into to non-league football and everything. It was phenomenal to get somewhere like Cardiff to the final. Uh, so our real cup final was the semi-final to get there. Um, unfortunately, we did lose. We lost 1-0 to Harry Redknapp's team, who at the time had some unbelievable players at Portsmouth in the Premiership. So the achievement to get there was fantastic. Yes, we were disappointed. I thought we had a chance of winning it, um, but unfortunately, um, we lost one nil. But the occasion was was fantastic. But our day really was the semi final at Wembley when we beat Barnsley. That that was our big day. Um, so we we basically had two cup finals, semi finals and the final itself. But yeah, I was disappointed. Uh, I'd have been more disappointed if I hadn't reached the final. So to get there was fantastic. To lose it, yes, a big disappointment, but um, it wasn't as bad as, you know, losing a, a playoff final or something like that. Um, it was just a great achievement to get there, really. The club then asked fans to buy season tickets in early January to raise funds to buy players. However, the club didn't buy any players. Was that money used for and how did fans take it? Well, they didn't take it very well. We were we were informed, uh, I was informed by the club that um, they call it an early bird season ticket sale. So they told me that they were going to do an early bird season ticket sale and all the money that was brought in, I would get to buy players. So I went on the TV, I went in the papers, I asked the fans to come forward because uh, we were near the top of the league at the time and we needed a push for one final push for promotion, which would have meant that we could have brought in one or two more players to help the squad that we had. And they sold, uh, they sold millions of pounds worth of tickets. It was unbelievable. 
And then once all the money was in, we thought we were going to get the money to buy players. But then I was informed that the club had their debts with the tax man and everything else, and all that money had to go to pay that. And of course, the fans kicked off, which rightly so. They had every right to kick off. We kicked off as uh, coaching staff. I kicked off because basically we weren't told the truth at the time. And it was a big disappointment. And we were close to promotion that year as well. And I felt with just one or two players coming in, that would have been the final cog in the wheel to make it go fully round. And it didn't happen. So all the fans had the right to be disappointed because we were as well. Um, And it wasn't fair. because the, the fans came out in their thousands to buy season tickets, thinking that it was going to buy players. And we all thought that, but unfortunately it didn't. And, and that period probably cost the people at the top on the board their jobs, and rightly so, because they shouldn't have done that. They should have told the truth and they didn't. Um, and that was, a, that was probably one of my biggest disappointments within, within the club, really that uh, they didn't tell the truth. Because uh, we, we all thought we were getting money for to buy players, and we didn't. I, I actually had players lined up ready to come to the club. <laughs> so you can imagine the disappointment I had when it didn't happen. Uh, who were the dif- difficult players to manage in the dressing room? You know, I, I've never really had any difficult players. I, I know I said before you have high maintenance and low maintenance. Mm-hmm. Players don't really worry about. There's other players that you, I wonder what they're up to. Um, you, you've spoken to two I called high maintenance, but there ain't any bother, really. Jay and Chops were like two little kids, always playing games, always doing stupid things. But I've never really come across any difficult players. Um, I've always found it easy to manage players. The biggest problem in football clubs you have is the people above you, the hierarchy, they're the ones that you have to satisfy and justify things that you've done. I always found players really easy to get along with. Um, even players that you're going you're gonna to have to tell that you're either going to let go or you're not going to play them on that, you know, in, in that game. Um, I never really had any problems with any players that I can recall. Or remember, um, I always got on well with them, and, and again, I think that comes back to hopefully being fair with them. So no, yeah, you, you'd have hijinks, people, or you know, they might turn in one day or something like that. But that, that that happens in all walks of life, not just football. So I never really had any problems with any players, to be honest. I just want to ask Dave and get your opinion on it because when we spoke to Michael Chopra. He, I'm not sure if you were a Cardiff manager at the time when Chops left. I think you and Chopper might have left in 2010. No, I sold Chops, yeah. I sold him to Sunderland, yeah. So he mentioned that during a game at Bristol City at halftime, Craig Bellamy came in and um, had a go at Chopper for using his phone at halftime. And Chopper blamed Bellamy for pushing him out of the club. What was kind of your take on that? Would you agree with Chopper? No, 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 no player can ever get another player shoved out of the club. I didn't know Chops had 
because you're not allowed to use your phone. So he's probably checking a horse race or something like that, knowing Chops. So one, <laughs> Chops knew he, he was wrong to use his phone at half time. Where he would have used it, I never saw it. Um, so, but to actually blame another player for getting you out the club, no, I think it's wrong, really. I'll speak to Chops about that, but no, that, that had no effect on on him. That might just be a little bit of bitterness from Chops. I'll, um, I'll, I'll send you the link. Soon yeah, no, yeah, yeah, please do. But no, that would never happen, really. It would be a sad indictment if it did. That means you haven't got control of a dressing room. No, Bellamy didn't have that sort of power, really. You reached the playoff final in 2010 and played Blackpool. You lost that game despite being favouritised. Favourites, why Why did you lose that game and what are your memories of it? Well, we were favourites because we were. We should have gone up straight away, really, but we just missed out. Um, there's, there's all different factors. We scored first. We were the better team. They knew we were the better team. Uh, we lost Jay at half-time, just before half-time, which was a big blow to us because he was one of our, you know, he's one of our main goal scorers. So that, that was difficult. Um, did you watch Manchester City and Real Madrid the other night? I watched the highlights. I watched the highlights as well. Yeah. How did Real Madrid beat Manchester City? Exactly the same. How did Blackpool beat us? We don't know. They scored one goal more than us, really. But um, it was a weird game to be in. Very strange game. Uh, Because, yes, we should have won. But like the other night, you you come off thinking, how did we lose that? But probably losing Jay was a big factor as well because he was one of our main scorers and and he was playing well at the time. So, that was a big loss to us as well. So, but things happen, you know, things do happen in football that you can't explain. I know supporters and that always want answers or they always think they know the answers, but you just got to put it down to on the day. Um, it, it, it wasn't going to be. And that and that happens in football sometimes. Um, in your final season at the club, you lost the playoff semi-final. However, a few days before, a lot of players had been out drinking at an award ceremony. This made a lot of fans angry. What do you make of it when you found out? Well, they weren't drinking before the playoff final. They, We didn't want... The club wanted to have a players do, which was um, to give out the awards to players. And we didn't want it. The staff didn't want it. But the club said that they were going to have it. And then one or two of the players had been seen out a bit later than what probably they should have been. One of the players that was seen out actually didn't drink. But, of course, the following day, we the team didn't play well. We lost at home to Middlesbrough. So it wasn't the playoffs. It wasn't. That's probably one of the reasons I would say cost is going up. Because if we'd have beaten Middlesbrough, we probably would have gone up uh, automatically. So, yeah, the fans would have. Listen, I, I was angry and frustrated. I was more frustrated with the club that they actually had the uh, the event. But the players that went out should have also known 
that um, there's a time and there's a place. So, yeah, I was very angry, um, very annoyed, very very disappointed and let down. But you still got to then pick a team. And some of them players that went out were also some of your better players as well. So they, they've got to answer that. They've got to answer for that. Because I didn't go out. The staff didn't go out. Other players didn't go out. So them, them ones that went out, they're the ones that should answer that question, really. Because, yeah, they did let everybody down. Because they went out when they shouldn't have. You were sacked. Uh, you were then sacked. Why were you sacked? And how did that conversation happen? Yeah, it's very unusual, isn't it, to be sacked after just missing out on a promotion. Um, I think I just fell out with the board. I, I didn't think they were helping us as much as what they should have. And as I said before, with the Wolves one, I have a tendency to fall out with the board sometimes because what I see is the way forward. They always don't. And um, to lose your job after missing out on a on a promotion is harsh. But I've been there a long time as well. So maybe they thought the change was right. I don't know. But um, it was an unusual situation. But again, um, disagreement between me and the board was the best way to describe it. Um, I felt it let us down previous two years in not investing in the club with players and they always expected us and expected me to keep finding players that they could get cheap and sell big and that's difficult to do year in year out and we did there we did at that club but selling the likes of Ramsey and people like this and Leuvens and Johnson when you're flying was always difficult to take and maybe I just had enough of that because we always got close and then it's when they did get promoted the people that came in had money to buy players you know I wish they would have done that with me rather than keep having to sell players but it's part and parcel of football sometimes so I'm not, I'm not bitter in any way I was just more annoyed, really, that um, you know that that could have been that could have been done a couple of years earlier, and we would have got promoted with the players that we had. But we always had to sell the best players every every window, which was also hard to take as well. <clears throat> you had a difficult relationship with the Cardiff City fans at times. Why was this, and what are your thoughts about Cardiff City fans? <clears throat> no, not really. No, I didn't have difficulty with the Cardiff fan. That that there's there's a saying sometimes, and Adam might back me up on this. Sometimes empty drums make the most noise, and that's what it was. It was a small group of people that would write in the you know on the message boards and things like that. So it always looks far worse. But I had a good relationship with the fans, and most clubs have been at, but. When you fall out with some fans, they're the ones who make the most noise, but they're the ones who don't know what's going on or whatever. So, no, I didn't really have a difficulty with the fans. I had more problems with the press than the fans. Um, majority of people, you'll always find in a football club, there'll be a small group of people that always think that they should get a better manager or 
someone different or whatever. But they've also got to look back at what was achieved at that football club. And I'm very proud of what we achieved there for what we had. Um, I don't think anybody else would have done it or can do it now. They're struggling now. So, no, I'm proud of what I did. But um, sometimes you'll always get some people on the message boards that um, will write stuff and they don't really know what they're writing about. But as we call it, they make they make a bit of noise and others start to believe it. So how do you, on about the press <laughs> and message boards and things like that, how, I've read some of them, I've read some of, when we're doing this research about you, I've, I've read some really horrible things that people have wrote about you. How did you take that? And obviously, did it affect you in any way? And and did you read the message boards and things like that? No, no, because people can write whatever they want, but they don't know you. If somebody that knew you wrote something bad, that would hurt you more. These people don't, you know, it's not just in football, you know. Imagine being prime minister of this country. <laughs> I wonder what he gets written about him, you know. So it's, you have to, it's part, people think it's part and parcel of the game. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't, it shouldn't happen, but... Unfortunately, when you're on it, when you're in a high-profile position, people tend to pass judgments about you when they don't know you, and then others think, "Oh, that's that's really what's happening." So, um, like I remember, I had I had a bit of trouble with one pressman at um, Cardiff, and um, he wrote to me. He did an article on me uh, a few years ago. He's passed away now, sadly. But um, we never got on. Um, and he, he wrote to me and he said to me, I, I never liked him. And it wasn't that I didn't like him. It's what he wrote I didn't like. And I, I said to him that he never gave the time to get to know me, get to know my personality, get to know my sense of humour. He just wrote about me. He didn't know anything about me. So I actually said that to him. It wasn't him I disliked. It's what he wrote about the players and the club and me. But he never really gave the time to get to know anything. And if you go back to what I said originally, how, how do you get the best out of people? You find out what makes them tick. He never bothered. He just wrote what he saw or what he, he think he, he you know was good to write. He never, in my time there, he never really wrote anything nice about the team. Even when we lost in the cup final, he didn't give the club credit or the players credit. He'd, or when we lost in the playoff final, he just hammered everybody. And he thought that's what he had to do. So he has to take that and get on and just ignore it. Otherwise, um, it can affect you. Um, and it does affect people. And, and you'll see that with lots of people within football or, or athletes. When people write about them and it does affect them. It's it's not, you know, you, you guys think about if if after this interview now, if I went on the message boards and wrote about you and it wasn't nice, how would you feel? So the best I thing is not, yeah, yeah, not to read it. Yeah, don't read it. And people people like always think they know more. And the rumor can grow and grow and grow and become out of hand. So no, it's it's something that you have to live with and just get on with. 
And I'm sure if I took everybody's um, word or what they said about me at face value, I wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. So, um, no. If people who knew me wrote nasty things about me, I think that would upset me far more than somebody who doesn't know me. Vincent Tan then bought Cardiff City at the end of your spell with the club. What did you make of Vincent and did you ever talk to him? Yeah, I spoke to him quite a lot. I went over, I flew over to Thailand to have dinner with him um, in the biggest dining room I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> it was a ballroom with one table in the middle. So by the time the food got to you, it was cold because <laughs> uh, it was like a million miles away from the from the kitchens. Um, very wealthy man, really nice man as well. And again, you know, fans that had a go at him and everything else, but he was ploughing millions into the football club. And fans thought they had the right to have a go at him. I, I found that quite crazy. Um, they they'd moan about his dress sense. They'd moan about him buying the club and everything else. And, and yet he put millions and he saved the club and they're still saving the club now and people still want to have a go at him. I found him um, a bit aloof, but basically generally a good man and a good person. Um, unfortunately, I never got the time with him that, um, you know, maybe I should have. Um, he didn't even know I'd been sacked, by the way. <laughs> There's two of the members of the board to sack me. He didn't even know I'd been sacked at the time. So really, uh, I got on quite well with him. And I've still I've still spoken to him over the years on odd occasions. Um, but no, I, I got on all right with him. But fans also got to be very careful that when they don't like what's going on inside the football club, and they start chanting for the board to be sacked and everything else. Also got to be very careful because sometimes it's better the devil you know than the devil you don't. And Vincent's have put a lot of money into that football club. And he still he still gets stick now. Um, but if you sit back and look at what he's put, and he did save the club because at the time the club were in dire straits. Um you know, because it, it costs a lot of money to run a football club and the more it actually costs you. He then managed Sheffield Wednesday and Hartley Pool. What are your memories of your time at those clubs? Well, I went to work for... All, all my chairmen have been crazy, by the way, that I've worked for. <laughs> uh, I then went to work for Milan Mandrik, who was a great guy. Um and I got to know Milan Mandrik uh, after I'd beaten Leicester in the semi in the uh, semi-finals of the playoffs at, at Wolves. Funny enough, so uh, uh, sorry, at Cardiff. So I got to know him really well, Milan, and um, he offered me the job because they fell out of the promotion run that season, and they fell out of the playoff positions. So when he spoke to me uh, after they got rid of the manager, they had something like 22 games left. And he he was desperate to get into the playoffs and try and get the club up. 
So when I went there, I think I won 19 and drew three games. I never lost the game. And we went up automatically. And it was a fantastic feeling to go up. And Sheffield Wednesday is a massive club, a big, big club. So the idea was to get them promoted, um, stabilise the following season, and then the third season have a push for promotion, just like it was at, at Wolves. That, that was the remit. But unfortunately, Milan wanted to sell the club. So when we got promoted, rather than investing in the club, he actually took money off the wage bill because it's a better opportunity to sell the club when your expenses aren't as, as high. So the three years I was there were good years, very good years. But when Milan was leaving, there was no good me staying. So I left. Hartlepool was a little bit different because um, there was a club that was always struggling, always will struggle. And they really weren't ready for the change. And they weren't ready for somebody like me. Because one, they didn't want to do it. And two, probably the players weren't good enough to do it. So unfortunately, um, I took in a couple of staff with me. Uh, Kevin Coops, who basically did the team and everything else. And I was trying to advise and, and run the club. But if people aren't prepared to listen, then nothing's going to change. That Adam will know this, and it's a good thing for you guys to remember that sometimes people think doing the same thing, something's going to change, and that's a sign of madness now. If you're going to change something, you've got to change what you're doing. You can't keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result. And that's what they were doing. They were doing the same thing and expecting something different to happen. What you've got to do, you've got to change something to make things happen. Uh, and they weren't ready to do that or weren't prepared to do that. During your time at Hartlepool, Jeff Sling said some very negative things about you on Soccer Saturday. What were your thoughts about that? And did you ever speak to Jeff about it? No, he's a, what, what, what I would call he's an absolute plant pot. He's an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Got no time for him. I think it was unprofessional. Um, and if you give people airtime like that, then I'm wasting my time. He's an absolute buffoon. Um, people within the game rang me, told me about it. People that he worked with were disgusted in him. Um, and why? why would somebody think that they have the right to go on on national TV and say something like that. Uh, he was just trying to be the big the big boy. Look at me, I'm, I'm this. And in fact, he made himself look very foolish. It didn't even warrant a reply from me, really. I just think he's a big clam pot, really. I, I'd like to say worse things, but I'd just be wasting my time and wasting my my fresh air. So now he was just a, an absolute idiot. And um, for whatever reason, he thought he could do it. I think it was mainly because I kicked him out of the dressing room one day. He didn't like me because he, I used to get on with him okay. But to do that, to do that to any person and any walk of life is wrong. Um, but he didn't come out of it very well. He lost a lot of 
it lost a lot of people that thought highly of him because of that. Um, and he certainly lost my respect. I've never spoken to him and I, I don't intend to speak to him. I'll probably stick one on him if I bumped into him anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, every week on the podcast, we like our guests and ask questions to each other. So we get a guest to ask a question, but they have no idea who the question is or going to be for. This week's questions comes from our previous guest, the captain of Wolverhampton Wanderers, Connor Cody, who asks, what is your favourite holiday destination? Mine? Oh, wow. Um, I like Dubai. And I liked... Um, Oh, I enjoyed Mauritius. And I had a great time when I played in Hong Kong for three years as well. Because I actually played in Hong Kong for three years. I played for the watch company, Seiko. And I had a fabulous time. So I think that part of the world I enjoy. I'm actually, uh, in a couple of weeks, I'm actually going over to Cairo in Egypt. And I like Cairo as well. It's a crazy place. If you ever, ever get the opportunity, go, because it never sleeps. And if you want a job for life, become a cleaner, because it's sand <laughs> everywhere. Just <laughs> sand, sand, sand. But a lovely place. But Dubai, I think, would be the place that I enjoy going to. Somewhere hot. Uh, could... Could you do the same, please? Can you think of a question for our next guest, please? But we aren't going to tell you who the guest is. The question can be anything you want. What's the worst thing you've done in in your sport? Interesting. Brilliant. Thanks. Before we finish, we would like to play a, uh, a quickfire game with you. We will ask you some questions, but you have to give wrong answers only. Do you understand? Wrong answers. You want to give a wrong answer? That's quite easy. I do that most times anyway, so don't worry. Are you ready? Remember, wrong answers only. Okay. Favourite food? Chicken. Best player you have managed? Chopra. Best stadium you have been to? Oh, God. Oh. Ploughfield. <laughs> Best chairman you have worked for? Oh, wrong answer. Oh, that's hard. Oh, that's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> that can't be fair. Oh, Brendan Elwood. Um, Favourite game you have managed? Sabutio. Uh, best thing about being Cardiff City manager? The weather. <laughs> play you wish you had signed oh god best player I wish I had a signed and wrong answer oh my word um, oh I know one yeah Kenny Daglish <laughs> <laughs> highlight of your career wrong answer getting married <laughs> <laughs> finish this sentence Sam Hamam is Clinically insane. <laughs> <laughs> I would just like to say a big thank you again to everyone who listens to our podcast. We really appreciate it. 
please continue to leave reviews and pass our podcast on to your friends and family. I will do. Listen, guys, I've really enjoyed it. And uh, I think you're doing a great job. Continue it. Cheers. um, Always behave yourselves as well. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today, Dave. We really enjoyed speaking with you, and it means so much to us uh, as a school to be able to have the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. No, thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks very much, guys. So we are returned to explain the further part of the episode, and we hope we have given you enough to think and try and work it out. The photo we we were trying to explain was from the Cricket World Cup in 1999. It was the semi-final between... Australia and South Africa. The scores were level and with one run to win, South Africa batsman Alan Donald gets run out, meaning that Australia win and progress to the final. If you got the correct answer, then let us know on our social media by searching TWS Sports Podcast. So boys, Dave has just gone. That was a very long podcast. He spoke for a long time. I'm going to start with you, Tom. What do you think of that episode, Tom? Well, honestly, it was amazing. Um, I liked him talk about the ups and downs of um, also from the fact because um, he's a Cardiff City supporter, but he was also managing Wolves, so it was kind of like very, very awkward. And he mentioned about like people need to understand that uh, you know he still has respect for Wolves, but he didn't support them, so he's not as enthusiastic to be like, oh yeah, um, I want the best for Wolves. Uh, Harvey, ha- what was your opinions of this episode of the podcast? I think it was a very good podcast. It's um, my first one back after Connor Cody, um, and I think it went really well, um, considering I've been gone for a week or so. So, yeah. After, what did you think of today's episode of the podcast? Uh, interesting, actually, because he's talked about um, in major like, for uh, wars, Cardiff, in, interesting about like um, he talked about Manchester and uh, um, Real Madrid just, just winning like uh, winning or losing he said like yeah just keep going thanks everyone for listening as usual uh, make sure to support our social medias uh, Twitter Instagram Facebook uh, TikTok um, and also follow us on Spotify and Apple um, Music etc And, um, yeah, thank you all. Take care. Thank you, guys. Bye. The TWS Sports Podcast combines autism and sport. This unique podcast is hosted by children with autism, and each week they interview famous sportsmen and women from around the world. The TWS Sports Podcast takes you deep into the sports star's career, their highs and lows, what happens away from the field of play, and so much more. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. The TWS Sports Podcast, where autism and sports combine. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.